So our second reading this morning is really a, a repeat of last week's uh, reading plus a couple of extra verses. I um, are, am going to be reading in Acts chapter 6. Oh, by the way, the readings are in your bulletins now. Okay, those of you who are good Baptists, you bring your Bibles with you to church. You Presbyterians are a little disoriented because there are no pew Bibles, um, but, but it's there in your bulletin now. So that's that's very handy. So you can mark that up and take a look at that. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 6 uh, through the first verses of Acts chapter 7. So hear the word of God. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, Some then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, Go into the land that I will show you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would be present in the preaching of your word, even as you were in the inspiring of it. Give us ears to hear. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday we talked a little bit about the testimony or the witness of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, and we learned that the word martyr actually comes from the Greek word for witness. And we heard Jesus called the apostles to be his witnesses, to be witnesses to everything that he said and did. And they only bore witness to things they had experienced firsthand. Our Christian witness, our Christian testimony, in that sense is the same. We only bear witness to those things that have happened to us. Witnessing and testifying are not about making theological arguments or philosophical proofs. Witnessing and testifying are simply telling our faith story to other people, telling other people about what has happened to us in our encounter with Jesus. This is who I was before I met Jesus. This is who I am now. Or as the blind man testifies in John chapter 9, I once was blind, but now I see. We also learned last Sunday that not everyone who hears the witness of a Christian is ready in that moment to receive the gospel. Jesus often said, He who has ears, let him hear, by which he meant not everybody has ears yet. 
Our words of witness and testimony sometimes fall on deaf ears, but they still are valuable. Because those words might be baby steps on the way for that person to come to faith. Coming to faith is a process. It doesn't happen all at once. And our witness and our testimony may not bear fruit for many years, but it is never wasted. As God says in Isaiah, my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. But it will accomplish what I desire, and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. A word of witness, a word of testimony is never wasted. Last week we talked about the fact that not everyone is ready to hear the gospel. We talked about prevenient grace, which is the grace that God gives us before we are converted, while we are still lost sinners. It is this prevenient grace which wakes us up to spiritual realities while we're still lost. It is this prevenient grace that gives our ears the ability to hear the gospel. The theological term for this is regeneration, which means rebirth. The Bible teaches that in our natural state, the condition that we are born into before God's prevenient grace, that we are actually spiritually dead. Now that's kind of tough news. But the Bible teaches that we're born into this condition, that it's our natural condition as descendants of Adam and Eve. Here's what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 4. Before we were united with Christ, we were spiritually dead. We were following the prince of the air, which is just a fancy title for Satan. We were children of wrath. The way we might put it, in the 21st century is we were spiritual zombies. We were mindlessly following the desires of our flesh. We were trapped in patterns of addictive behavior. That's our pre-Christ condition. That's our natural condition. That's the condition of unconverted humanity. Before Christ, we were dead. We were dead. We were dead. We were dead. Now here are some of the things that you'll notice about dead people. Number one, dead people don't do anything. Number two, dead people do not have a free will. Number three, dead people simply bob and float in the tide of physical compulsion like corpses in the sea. It's not until they're regenerated, until they're reborn, until they're made alive again that God can begin to work on them. We must be regenerated before we can come to faith. We must be made spiritually alive so that we have ears to hear. Only after we've been regenerated can we then respond to the gospel. Now, we never know when somebody who is lost and outside of the family of God might be regenerated. It could happen at any time. It's a very mysterious thing that happens. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we continue to preach to spiritual corpses because we never know what day God will wake them up and they'll be able to hear. 
So that's some of what we talked about last Sunday. This morning I want to take up an important theme from our reading that we didn't have time for last week. Our reading this week, of course, is the roughly the same as what we read last week plus the first three verses of chapter 7. What I want to talk about this week are... Uh, Ways in which our human psychology closes our ears to the gospel, even when the gospel is preached directly to us. Now this is a message for anyone who is not yet converted, not yet decided to follow Christ. This is a message for those who are sitting on the fence still. But this is also a message for those of us who are converted, for those of us uh, who have been born again, because we continue to wrestle with the same human psychology when God speaks into our lives. Plenty of people who are converted are not living lives that are completely obedient to God, completely consecrated to God. Some of us have been born again, we're going to get into heaven by the skin of our teeth, but we're not enjoying victory over sin in this life. And so that message is for us also. Now, as I've said a dozen times from this pulpit, a preacher is always preaching to himself. And so this message is for me too. So let's go back and look at our text in Acts to see what kind of psychological impediments to the gospel that it reveals. You have it there in your bulletins if you want to take a look at it. We read in verses uh, 9 and 10. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen is a Jew. He's talking to Jews. Unlike Paul, Stephen isn't preaching to pagans or to atheists. He's talking to people who are already part of the covenant community. He's talking to people who believe in God. He's talking to people who are committed to the law of Moses. What's important to see here is that sometimes the word of God is challenging even to the people of God. Of course, the word of God is challenging to non-believers, to people who are outside of the faith, but sometimes the word of God is also challenging to us, to, to the people of God. And a group from the synagogue of the freedmen disagree with what Stephen is teaching, and they begin to argue with him in the synagogue. So far, so good. Actually, there's nothing wrong with arguing with the preacher. People have different learning styles, of course. Some sit quietly and take notes while the professor lectures. For me, the way I learn best is to wrestle with, to argue with, to dispute with the teacher. When I was in school, I was the one who was always peppering the professor with questions, challenging their claims, looking for further clarity and explanation. There's nothing wrong with that. Because... The truth only becomes clearer as you dig into it. If what a teacher is saying is true, then hard questions will reveal that truth more fully. On the other side, I would have to say to you, beware any teacher who says that certain topics can't be discussed. 
Beware any person who preemptively excludes certain questions or certain arguments. The only reason to shut down an opponent in an honest intellectual debate is because what you're saying simply isn't true or it's not defensible. Which is why cancel culture and deplatforming are so dangerous to the public good and to the security of this republic, a republic built on free discourse and the exchange of ideas. As Thomas Jefferson wrote to Supreme Court Justice John Jay in 1786, quote, Our liberties cannot be guarded but by the freedom of the press, nor can that freedom be limited without danger of losing our liberty. Jefferson, of course, was well aware of, and he was the victim of, lots of trash talk in the American press, but he thought it was better to put up with that noise and that static rather than to censor the press and to cut off public debate. There's nothing wrong with the members of the synagogue of freedmen disputing with Stephen. Later in the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to read stories of the Apostle Paul disputing in public with pagan philosophers in Athens. Our willingness as Christians to have open and honest debate about our faith is healthy. Where the folks from the synagogue, however, go wrong is when they refuse to concede after Stephen has clearly proved right. Verse 10 reads this way. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Now wisdom here refers to human reason, to the logical or the biblical arguments that Stephen made. We don't know what all of those were. And the spirit is a reference to the supernatural signs that were uh, confirming that, uh, uh, that Stephen was speaking on behalf of God. You'll recall that uh, the preaching of the apostles, and now Stephen in this case, during this period was accompanied by many miraculous signs. It was a way that God confirmed that their message was uh, true and authoritative. The people in the synagogue heard what Stephen said. They argued with him because what he was saying didn't agree with what they had already been taught or already thought. But when all of the debate was over... And it would have been clear to a neutral observer that Stephen won the case. They still refused to agree. Have you ever known people like that? Sometimes when my wife and I are having an argument about something really important, like which is the shortest route to the church... She has her ideas, of course, which I know are wrong, and I have my ideas which are fully rational. And if she then takes out her iPhone and shows me on Google Maps that I've made a mistake, I become very calm and rational. And I say things like, oh yeah? Well, how do you know that your phone wasn't hacked by the Russians? Or maybe I'll stick my fingers in my ears and I'll begin to sing the Star-Spangled Banner. Psychologically, it's hard to admit 
When we're wrong, especially when the thing that we're wrong about is something we believe deeply or is something that's connected to our identity as a person. Now, let me tell you something hard about the gospel. The gospel may be, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It may be that. But the gospel also overturns Every human system of philosophy and values, no matter what ism you hold to, no matter what party owns your loyalty, the gospel trumps them all. The gospel tells me that I am not okay the way I am. The gospel tells me that I should not accept myself the way that I am. The gospel tells me that my heart is out of tune with God. That I'm alienated from God's ways. That I have a real problem with God. That's the bad news of the gospel that comes before the good news. But then the gospel also tells me that there is a hope for me. A real hope. Not a fake hope. A hope that won't disappoint. But that that hope cannot be in myself. And it can't be in any program or efforts that... I undertake. My hope can only be in God who has won the victory that I could never win on my own. Now, I don't like two parts of the gospel. Number one, I do not like being told that I am wrong. And yet, that's what the gospel tells me. And number two, I don't like that the gospel tells me that when I am wrong, that I don't have the ability to fix myself. And yet, that's what the gospel tells me. If we understand what the gospel says, we have to change our opinions, our deeply held opinions about who we are, about our identity. I like to think of myself as a good and decent person. And yet, in light of the gospel, what I see is a heart that is corrupted with selfish desire. I like to think of myself as a person who's able to overcome Challenges and meet adversities. And yet, in light of the gospel, what I see is that I am a slave to sin and that I'm spiritually dead and without hope unless God regenerates me. The people who opposed Stephen thought of themselves as good and decent people and they thought that if they did make an occasional mistake that they could, you know, use the system of prayers and sacrifices that were available there at the temple. Sure, I messed up, but don't you see how I've atoned for my sin with these two pigeons? I'm a good fellow. In light of the gospel, all of that becomes pure foolishness. And so the members of the synagogue fought Stephen tooth and nail. What they were fighting for was their own self-image, their own self-identity, their image of themselves as good people, as people who were capable of moral goodness, as people who were able to set things to right if they did fail occasionally. And yet what we learn in the cross of Christ is that we are 100% entirely unable to do these things. We are unable to be good on our own. We're unable also to atone for our failures. Our only choice, our only hope for salvation is to stop relying on ourselves and then just to throw ourselves at God's mercy. Some of us hate to do that. There's a psychological barrier there. 
And I think it has something to do with putting ourselves into someone else's debt. All of us like getting gifts, sort of. But nobody wants to be in someone else's debt. We don't want to be someone else's debtor, you know, for our very life and our self-worth. In a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn that has the line, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. As a follower of Christ, as someone who's unable to live a pure and holy life on my own, as someone who's unable to atone for my own failures, every day I'm constrained, I'm obligated, I'm forced to admit that I owe it all to God's grace. Every day I'm indebted to God's grace in Christ. If there's anything that's good in me, it's only because of Christ. That's the gospel. Now it's news that will save your life. But in order to receive that news, you have to be willing to give up your preconceived notions about who you are. Here at HVPC, we say that we are a fellowship of sinners saved by God's grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. But it's also the horror of the gospel for the person who can't bring himself to admit that he's a sinner or that he needs God's help if he's going to have any hope. Which is why the members of the synagogue fought Stephen. First, they fought honestly in open debate, but when it became clear that Stephen was right and that his arguments were solid and that the Holy Spirit was with him, they still couldn't admit the truth. They had a psychological barrier. And so they got nasty. We read, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemy against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. They can't withstand Stephen's argument. They can't withstand the power of the Holy Spirit that testifies to the preaching of Stephen. So rather than admit their error, they double down and they attack Stephen dishonestly, bringing in false witnesses, violating even the law of Moses, which they claim to be defending. Beware of people who defend the law by violating the law. The law of Moses, of course, isn't going to save them, but the law of Moses does prohibit the very thing that they're doing. And so they add guilt to their guilt, and in the end, you know how this story comes out, they're going to murder this man. He'll be the first Christian murdered because he was a Christian. Because Stephen and the gospel that he proclaimed undermine their self-image. They saw themselves as good and righteous people. They saw themselves as able to atone for their sins when they did commit sins. But the gospel doesn't give them that luxury. The gospel says that we are dead sinners and that we need a Savior to raise us from the dead and to give us new life. The gospel says that Jesus atones for our sins and that makes them needy debtors which they would rather not be. And so they fight as if they're fighting for their very lives. 
Now maybe you think that the people who persecuted Stephen in this way were really awful people, but I don't think we're much different. I've seen this kind of behavior right here in our own flock, people whose fragile self-image hangs so desperately on the opinions of other people, on other people thinking that they're good or competent or holy or decent, and when the ugly truth comes to the surface, as it always will, that they're just sinners like everyone else, for those people whose hope rests on themselves rather than on Christ, well, they can't endure it. If our security rests on our righteousness and our goodness, then we're in a very dangerous place. Because no one is righteous. Nobody. Not you, not me, not the members of the synagogue of freedmen. I know that in my own life, it was my own self-image that kept me from the gospel. I knew, because I had been raised in the church, what the scriptures taught. And I knew that the life that I was living at that time was out of line with what Scripture taught. And so rather than admit that I was wrong, what I did was remove myself from the church and remove myself from the proclamation of the gospel. Rather than admitting that I was out of God's will, I attacked those who represented God's truth on earth. I attacked the church. People do it all the time. Some people can only own up to their need of a savior when they hit rock bottom. Others of us are fortunate that we could admit things before they get too crazy. Of course, the best time to admit our sin and failure is right away. And the best time to run to God for healing and forgiveness is right now. And so if you have never owned up to your need for a savior... I invite you to do that today. You can do that today. You are surrounded by people who have done the same thing. You're surrounded by people who have admitted to themselves and to God and to others that they are sinners, having no way to fix themselves. You're surrounded by sinners saved by grace, and that can be you today, too. So what about those of us who are already born again? How does this story in Acts chapter 6 speak to us? One of the hard parts of being a Christian is that we have been ushered into a new world, a new reality. But at the same time, we may we remain in the old world and the old reality. The Bible tells us that in Christ we are a new creation, and yet when we look at our lives, we see so much evidence of the old nature still hanging around. God has forgiven the sins of those who are in Christ, and yet we wrestle with sin every day. We receive the new nature, and yet the old nature keeps showing up. It's kind of hard. I really wish it were the case that when we came to faith in Jesus, that all of a sudden our old nature would simply die and we would stop sinning. This would be a great, if I were designing it, that's how I would do it. It would be lovely if all of a sudden we come to faith in Christ and we would stop being selfish and we'd stop being lazy and we'd stop being angry and we'd stop being gluttonous and we'd stop being lustful and we'd stop being fearful. Yes, fear is faithlessness. It is a sin. I really wish that were the case, that when we came to faith in Christ, that all of a sudden our old nature would disappear. But that's not how it is. The old nature remains. 
even as this new nature is growing up. As Christians, we regret and we grieve over our sins. So that's different from before. Before our conversion, we celebrated our sins. We encouraged others to join in those sins. As Christians, we grieve and regret them, but we still fight a daily battle with them. I'm not even sure that Christians sin less than non-believers. Our relationship to sin has changed. We now fight it and battle it. A desire for holiness and purity does spring up in our hearts where before there was no battle, now there's a holy battle between good and evil in ourselves. And that's a step in the right direction. But how do we win that holy battle? How do we finally gain a victory over sin in our lives? Well, we don't. We don't win the battle. We don't gain the victory. Because the battle isn't ours to win. And the victory doesn't belong to us because Jesus already fought and won that battle. Jesus already conquered sin and death. Jesus already gained the victory for us. And so there's actually nothing left for us to do. We don't add to the finished work of the cross Everything that Jesus did at Calvary is 100% complete. And because our sins are forgiven, when we do sin, we run to God because we trust Him and because we know that He loves us, because we know that we're acceptable in His sight because of the sacrifice of Christ. Before, in our natural state, before we were born again, when we sinned, we ran away from God and we hid ourselves. We instinctively knew that we dare not be in the presence of holiness because we're sinful, Remember what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden after their sin. God comes into the garden in the evening and rather than going to meet him, they run away and hide. When we're born again, we no longer have to hide. We have a Father who loves us and who redeemed us at the cross. And when we struggle with sin, instead of running away from God, we run to the Father and we ask for forgiveness and we ask for help. And as we run to him... We also learn the pleasure of being welcomed and secure. And as we keep experiencing that pleasure, that holy pleasure, the other pleasures, the fleshly pleasures, pleasures that always bring with them certain pain and regret, well, they begin to lose their grip on us. And we begin to get a foretaste of the victory that will be ours completely one day when we're in our glorified bodies. The more time we spend in the sweetness of the company of God, the less sweet the things of this world seem to us. Now, I wrestle with sin every day. And I fall into sin most often when I've been away from God. Certain times of day when God is far from my thoughts, perhaps because I'm so busy with the troubles of this life, that's when I'm susceptible to temptation. But when I spend time with God, temptation is farther away. I don't hear the call of the flesh and the world in quite the same way. And I experience a sweetness and a peace that is more complete and more satisfying than the things that the world and the flesh can offer. Our victory over sin and temptation in this world 
while we wait for God's final deliverance, when Jesus returns, our victory over sin and temptation in this world will always be found by enjoying the company of God more, by enjoying the pleasures of God more, by receiving a fuller satisfaction by being in the presence of God. The sweetness of God makes the charms of this world seem boring and bland. There is a victory in being in the presence of God, which is, by the way, why regular Bible study and prayer are so important. It's why regular worship is essential to our Christian life. There is victory in the presence of God because God gives us glimpses of how sweet life can be with Him. The world and the flesh are always going to call us, but the more time we spend with God, the more firmly those pleasures are rooted in our hearts and our memories, the less interesting will be the call of sin, and the greater our victory will be. All glory to God. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you this day, and we thank you for Brother Stephen, and we thank you for his testimony. And Lord, I thank you for having drawn him close to yourself and having having given him a vision of yourself. Lord, I thank you that his testimony has been uh, preserved for us in in the words of Holy Scripture. And I pray that they might find root in our lives this day. And I do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.